Today on Ag News Daily. Farmers or farmland in the, in the country is de- declining at a steady rate. And this will impact the ability of agriculture. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Ag News Daily Podcast. This is Delaney Howell, joined by my co-host, Mike Pierce. And Mike, you are traveling this week, as I understand it. I am getting back on the road this afternoon, headed up to scenic, sunny, southeastern Minnesota. We'll be flying into Rochester, and then tomorrow, tomorrow evening, headed over to Adams County, Minnesota, to Adams, Minnesota, to talk to the Adams County corn growers. I'm really excited. I, I love talking to corn growers. You know, that part of Minnesota, from the few conversations I've had with those growers, ended up with a decent year. Uh, they kind of dodged a lot of the heavy rainfall, so I'm excited to see here if what I've heard is correct. So I'm looking forward to talking to corn growers. If you're there in Adams County, if you're growing corn, you know, come on by to the American Legion tomorrow at five. I'm sure we can get you tickets at the door. Well, that will be fantastic, Mike. Good luck with that. Thank you, Delaney. How? What are you up to this week? Let's see. I recorded another episode of the Spokesman Speaks podcast this morning, and that'll be airing next Monday. But What's the big news, Delaney? Break it down um, for us. What are we hearing had... from the Iowa Farm Bureau? They had, they're going to have a really good episode focused around sustainability and just the idea that perhaps the cattle and crop side of things are not impacting the environment quite as much as other people would like to, I can't say the word I'm wanting to say on the podcast because we have a clean rating. So I'll just say mm. <laughs> as much as some of those people like to discuss or like to spread rumors. I think if you spell it, we can still keep a clean rate. Oh, because, okay. You know, I could just yeah, abbreviate it. It's just BS. I mean, really, All their BS. If a kid can spell a cuss word, he probably ought to be saying it. <laughs> and he, if he's in agriculture, he already is. He probably has heard his dad or grandpa or mom say it around livestock if they have livestock. Right. A crescent wrench has slipped in the shop and these <laughs> words have come out. That is probably true. Well, that's good, Delaney. That's glad, good to hear. I mean, the more we can get that story out there talking about, you know, the actual, the scientific impact of agriculture on the environment, the better off we all are. Absolutely, Mike. Well, I tell you what, speaking of better off we all are, I had a piece or a bit of deja vu earlier today. Delaney, do you remember, oh gosh, it was probably heading into 2018, there was a huge kerfuffle okay. about the grain glitch in yes. the tax law. Do you remember that? Yes, in 2017 I wrote a story about it. Oh, perfect. So the grain glitch is back in the news. Mm-hmm. It has never really been actually fixed by the Treasury Department. It's never been officially repaired or at least brought back by the IRS. However, co-op officials, the Council of Farmer Cooperatives, got together with IRS officials, and they did say that after testimony this week from Secretary Treasury Steve Mnuchin, that the IRS is going to adjust Section 199AG and kind of restore the tax deduction that existed before that 2017 tax law was passed. Um, This is building on the rules that were written last year by the Treasury department. And um, back to, effectively, for those of you who don't recall, this all boils down to the cooperative's ability to uh, combine non-patronage income as a part of the deduction calculation. I don't know what that all looks like. I'm not a CPA. I hate paying taxes. But it sounds like this is going to be a win for cooperatives and, therefore, the cooperative owners 
the farmers. Yes, and I think it's just, it's crazy that it's taken this long to actually get this sorted out. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the government for you. That is true. And actually, speaking of the government, Mike, we had, of course, Super Tuesday yesterday with some preliminary results. I think the, the vote counting process is still kind of going on, but uh, it went into the wee hours, really, of folks and states and territories reporting what they had for their Super Tuesday results. And it appears as of this afternoon that Joe Biden is kind of the front runner right now, leading the Democratic delegate count with about 246 votes compared to Bernie Sanders, who's at 229. Elizabeth Warren got about 16 and Mike Bloomberg got eight as of so far. Tulsi Gabbard grabbed one last night. Okay, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, she's got one delegate. So, I mean, the race has consolidated, and, you know, as we talked about yesterday or the day before, whenever all this broke, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, you know, Harry Reid, all the quote-unquote moderate, uh, depending on where you stand on the political spectrum, they might or might not be moderates, came together and have coalesced around Joe Biden, and that certainly seemed to kind of uh, give him a little bit of an edge. The state that surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have, was that California went uh, resoundingly for Sanders. Yeah, I don't, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, I guess not. I guess it's California. You know, we all make jokes about California, and I know we've got California listeners in the Central Valley and up and down the coast, and, you know, uh, sorry, but we do make jokes about your state uh, here in the heartland. Of course, I was also made fun of for being an Iowan earlier. It's one of the beautiful things about agriculture is we can all rip on each other and have fun doing it. Yeah, and it does appear, too, that rural voters actually played a pretty significant role in getting... Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, into the top-running Democratic delegate position. Interesting. Just outsized influence of voters in rural areas? Or they turned out super heavy for Biden? They turned out pretty heavily for Biden, especially some of those folks located in the rural South. In Oklahoma, for example, about 36% of Democratic voters were rural And 41% of those, 36%, were for Biden. Minnesota had a pretty good turnout in favor of Biden. Alabama, North Carolina, and Virginia. Well, to be fair, I think there's like 12 Democrats in Oklahoma. (laughs) Okay. Biden got six. Oh, okay. Or eight. He was a real big player. Got it. Um, However, we did see, and, you know, I think this will probably be under discussion for the remainder of the week. Yesterday, during Super Tuesday... There was a lot of uncertainty heading into this. Nobody really knew because Joe Biden had performed very poorly in a lot of the earlier states. Okay, now he's got Pete, he's got Amy, he's got all these other heavyweights coming behind him. Will it move the trigger? Bernie was the leader as of yesterday. Yesterday we saw an 800-point sell-off in the Dow. Today, now that it's confirmed that Biden has sort of coalesced and is the front runner, Dow's up 800 points. No, excuse me. Dow is up, yeah, 827 points as we record here at about 130. So there is some feedback going into the markets. And when we talk about the equity markets and their impact on agriculture, they're certainly beneficial for bringing money into markets, which can include commodities. And today, we'll talk about this when we get to markets in a second, pretty much everybody but wheat is the benefactor of funds coming into our world. Everything's a little green today. That's how we like it to be. Well, that's how we producers like it to be. Right, absolutely. You know, we... 
We do see some struggling. However, the ethanol industry, Delaney, this news was released earlier today. We had the report from ethanol producers, and we continue to see ethanol production grow. We are up over last week, and we're up over the same time period last year. And good news for corn producers, ethanol production required the processing of 109.2 million bushels of corn last week. Last week, it was 106.7, and last year, it was only 102.1 million bushels. So really, we're up about 7 million bushels of corn processing to produce ethanol. So the, the downside is we also saw ethanol stocks, so the storage capacity for ethanol, was at the largest level in history. So we're producing a lot more. We might be selling a little bit more, but we're also storing a lot more, which could create some headaches down the road. But hopefully we'll get to driving season before too long. We'll be able to pull those back down. I think driving season is now. It's like 50 degrees out today. Well, yeah. I mean, if you got a convertible, put the top down and get to running. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, Mike. Well, turning our attention to another thing that's been dominating the news headlines is, of course, the coronavirus. I am amazed by the amount of people who have said they are canceling spring break trips and international travel but it appears that President Trump has also threatened, he said, we're not going to necessarily limit domestic travel, but it is on his radar to potentially limit some travel to South Korea, Japan, and Italy as the coronavirus continues to, unfortunately, dominate the headlines. We also then saw China, who of course is still battling to contain the virus, has said that they are working very quickly to open ports, send folks back to work, and according to the CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, Jim Sutter, he said he's, his on-the-ground contacts are also confirming that there is good news, and it appears that there are soybeans making their way to China and uh, getting through that system. We also saw the Xinhua News, which is a state-run media outlet there in China, reporting that business is returning to normal for most of the countryside, if not all of the country. Interesting. So we could start, I mean, the big, the big concern we've talked about so much on the podcast, Delaney, is the transport. How are we going to get exactly. from the place that has it, which is us, to the place that needs it, which is rural China, and that might be coming around sooner rather than later. It sounds like it. It sounds like they are trying to get things back up and running, but of course... I hate to be cynical, but China, of course, their media is state-censored, so they ultimately put in the messaging that their government wants them to put in there. So I don't know if we can confirm how much of that is accurate or not. But it does sound like, you know, CEO Jim Sutter said his contacts are also confirming that as well. Right. I'm, I'm less inclined to trust the Jinhua news agency, but if Jim Sutter <laughs> says it, okay. Yeah. I mean, he's got the guys who know what's actually moving. Right. Speaking of what's actually moving, we have talked about this before on the podcast. This is an issue down in South America, but mainly Brazil. And this is the lack of financing in agriculture. Most growers in that part, in, in that country specifically, either self-finance, they've got the capital and they're writing checks as checks get need to be written for inputs, for seed, for equipment, and all of that. Or, in a lot of cases, they're receiving financing directly from input suppliers, which we saw last year created some challenges for those suppliers when farmers go bankrupt. They were found that 
they had no recourse. There was no way to gain back any of these assets. And so they started to pull credit. And in the midst of Brazil planting an extremely large soybean crop, in the midst of Brazil benefiting from this tariff war with China from the U.S., this was kind of the one thing that pulled acreage back. Well, Brazil's addressing it. Brazil Senate uh, today, in fact, approved a bill to expand financing for farmers. It's going to go to President Jair Bolsonaro, and it, once he signs it, it's good to go. Basically, what this does is this – they call it fraternal funds – can be created, backed by farmers themselves to finance activities in the sector, provide credit guarantees, and, quote, collectively renegotiate and pay down debt. When I hear fraternal organizations, basically what I'm visualizing, what Brazil <laughs> is trying to put together, are credit unions. Okay. Uh, that's what they're trying to do, collections of folks who are piling up their own money and then lending it back out. I assume there's going to be an interest rate. I will continue to dig into this bill. I don't think anybody expected it to pass this quickly. So it was a little bit of a surprise to see this news item come across my desk earlier today. All right. Well, you'll have to send me that article so we can share it in our weekly newsletter this week, Mike. You bet. I will shoot it to you right now, Delaney Howell. Listeners, if you are not currently subscribed to the Ag News Daily or Global Ag News Newsletter, be sure to do it. Head to Global Ag, uh, globalagnetwork.com and uh, subscribe at the bottom of the webpage. Right, Delaney? Absolutely. Get on it. What other news you got for us? I think I am out for today, Mike. What news do you have? Well, I've got some market news. Should we get to it? Let's do it. All right, folks, we've got mixed trade today in the markets. We've got corn and mostly beans higher. Wheat significantly lower on the day, back and forth trade in cattle, but they did finish in the green. Starting with the corn market, the May contract was up three and three quarters at eight, ugh, 385 and uh, even. The December contract was up one and a quarter to finish at 385 and three quarters. Over in soybeans, the May contract was up three and three quarters as well, finished the day at 907 and a quarter. November, down two cents. New crop contract dropped to 917 and a quarter. Wheat really took it hard. The May contract was down nine cents on the day. Follow through buying just didn't materialize despite the drop in the dollar yesterday. May finished the day at 5.18 and a quarter. December contract down six cents at 5.38 and a half. Looking over at the world of livestock, as I mentioned, green and cattle, green and hogs as well. April live cattle up a dollar 17.50 at 111.27 half. The June up a dollar 15, finishing at 104.52.50. Over in feeder cattle, April contract up a dollar 77 half, closing at 135.55. The May. Up two dollars thirty-seven and a half cents to close at one thirty-six forty-two fifty. And hogs, as I mentioned, in the green again today. The May contract up ninety-seven and a half cents, closing at seventy sixty. The June contract up seventy-five cents to wrap the day at seventy-eight eighty-two and a half. Looking over at the world of dairy, we've got the March contract unchanged on the day, finished at sixteen thirty-four, with the April down seven to close at sixteen oh one. Without further ado, Delaney, what? Who or what are we going to be talking to or about for today's interview? <laughs> well, Mike, we are talking with Leon Kalankowitz, who is the scientific director of Numbers USA. He's done an interesting study. You might have seen some of his work looking at the urban sprawl that we continue to see and how that's impacting our farmable land. Well, we are joined Today, a fascinating guest, Leon Kalinkowitz, the scientific director of Numbers USA, talking about the U.S. population as as far as that pertains to farmable ground, as well as the urban sprawl that continues to impact the business of agriculture. Leon, thanks for joining today. 
You're most welcome, Delaney. Glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about the organization that you work with, Director of Numbers USA. What are you guys doing and what well, footprint number, do you, yeah, you play? Yeah, num numbers USA is an organization that was founded in the mid-1990s, so about 25 years ago, by Roy Beck, who was one of the, the first environmental reporters in the United States. And over the years, as someone who came of age at the time of the first Earth Day, as did I, for that matter, in 1970, and we're now celebrating the 50th anniversary of that uh, first Earth Day, um, a big theme at that time is overpopulation or rapid population growth in the United States and the world and the impacts that has on the environment and environmental sustainability, including agriculture, the ability to feed ourselves. So uh, Roy started Numbers USA in the mid-1990s when he felt that uh, the primary cause of continuing U.S. population growth namely high, historically high immigration levels, wasn't being addressed. There were actually two presidential commissions founded uh, or, or authorized by President Clinton that did deal with this. One was the so-called Jordan Commission on Immigration, which recommended uh, tighter immigration enforcement and overall numbers, in part to reduce the impact on American workers and also uh, for the sake of environmental sustainability. And then at the same time, there was uh, 95, 96 eras, what we're talking about here. There was a President's Council on Sustainable Development, which came out of the famous Rio de Janeiro Conference of 1992, at which uh, George H.W. Uh, uh, Bush represented the United States, along with more leaders than had gathered leaders of countries that had gathered in world history at that point. So President Clinton, the following president, started this uh, President's Council on Sustainable Development. And they had uh, one of the task forces under that council was the Task Force on Population and Consumption. And they uh, looked at those two sides of the coin when it comes to environmental degradation and concluded that although immigration is a sensitive issue, the U.S. was going to have to reduce immigration levels if we were ever going to uh, stabilize our population. That means stop population growth and thereby pursue environmental sustainability. So, I mean, sustainability, from what you're suggesting or, or sharing with us, has been an issue that's been impacting, you know, the business of many things, including the business of agriculture, for quite some time. Why is it in your viewpoint that as of, I don't know, I mean, the last couple of years, it really feels like sustainability has been such a hot button issue, especially within the agricultural sector? Well, um, from our perspective, uh, and looking at some numbers that we crunched from the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service, the NRCS, and their NRI, their Natural Resources Inventory, uh, Farmers or farmland in the, in the country is de declining at a steady rate, and this will impact the ability of agriculture, U.S. Ag American agriculture, domestic agriculture, not only to feed Americans with an abundant and a diverse diet, but to have enough left over for export to an, an ever-hungrier world. For example, cropland decreased by 13% between 1982 and 2015. And these are numbers coming directly from the NRCS and their Natural Resources Inventory, or NRI. 
some of that land went into the CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, about a third of it. But those are lands that are deemed highly erosive and probably shouldn't be subjected to, uh, you know, tillage or other agricultural processes um, or, you know, they won't be able to sustain production in the future anyway. Uh, over that same time, same 33-year time period, pasture land declined by 7% and non-federal range land declined by 3%. So overall, there is this continuing, uh, we like to say, erosion in the amount of agriculturally productive land that can be used to produce food in in perpetuity for the country. And we think that's an alarming trend. Uh, Agricultural technology, biotechnology, and genetic engineering can only go so far in terms of produce, uh, uh, increasing yield per acre when we're faced with um, you know, uh, long-term declines and losses of the productive land base that we're seeing, in good part from development, from urban development, driven in good part by population growth. Yeah, and I mean, that's a big number, especially when you're looking at the 43 million acres that have been paved over since 1982. I mean, that's a lot of land that could have been used for agricultural production. And I think the other side of that is because we keep hearing or talking about this number of population growth by 2040 or 2050, we're going to have, you know, nearly 10 billion people to feed with less land resources. Globally, yeah. And, you know. Correct, yeah. And and then we have, and, of course, uh, the divide between consumers saying we want things produced this way, and in reality, agriculture right. has to do it this way. So, what what are you what are your thoughts on that? Well, I we boy, it's a very very complex picture, and uh, there's so many many factors weighing weighing on it. One of them, and this may or may not be popular with some of your listeners, is climate change and the fact that. Uh, Yes, although carbon dioxide in the air is increasing, and that is a fertilizer for plants, uh, it doesn't affect all plants equally, right? It may aid weeds, certain weeds better than others, and it can also dry out soils, meaning that if anything, in a lot of areas, especially those that are on the margin right now, production is going to be going down just because they're going to be subjected to greater, longer and more intense droughts, like uh, the one Australia has been experiencing this past summer for them, our our winter. So that's one of many, many factors. Another one is that the fer- two of the most important fertilizers for food, for crops, are, are the nitrate and the phosphate fertilizers. Nitrates come from non-renewable natural fuels, uh, especially natural gas, you know, the Haber-Bosch process. And phosphates are mined, and there's a limited amount of uh, a phosphate in the world and a known number of mines and there's real concern about how much phosphate there will be to keep that food production up and especially in the latter half of this century and at the same time as you say uh you know the population by 2050 could go uh, we're pushing 8 billion right now about 7.8 billion globally by 2050 we're probably going to have over 10 billion and by 2100 the UN projects 11 billion and climbing still at a very rapid rate. That is, unless what we environmental scientists call uh, negative feedback effects have already started to weigh heavily on us, in which case it may not be possible ever to reach that number, but not because of, uh, say, um, an increase or a spread in the, the use of family planning, but because mortality rates start to increase in more vulnerable parts of the world. So there are a lot of factors at work here. 
And, you know, again, it would be remiss of me not to mention that there is there are continuing improvements in productivity and agricultural science is a big deal at many uh, land-grant colleges like the one I graduated from, Virginia Tech, and the one I'm at right now or, or live near right now, Penn State. But they can't work miracles. Nothing can work miracles in the real world. And Leah, not to switch tracks too immediately on you, but I also wanted to make sure we took a little time to talk about the recent report that you put together called Population Growth and Sprawl in Oregon. A two-part question for you. One, why did you choose to focus on Oregon? And two, give us your big synopsis of the report, what you found. Yeah, we focused on Oregon because Oregon has long had a reputation as an environmental leader back in 19, uh, on many fronts. Uh, Back in 1972, uh, germane to what we're talking about now, they actually passed a a law called uh, SB 100, the uh, Urban Growth Boundary Law that required every municipality above a certain size in the state to set a boundary or set limits to how far that given city, such as a Portland, could grow out to. Now, that those weren't meant to be permanent limits, right? But uh, increasing those limits involved a conscious decision rather than uh, allowing uh, development to happen willy-nilly or pell-mell or randomly across the landscape. So Oregon was making an effort even 50 years, nearly 50 years ago to come to terms with the rapid population growth that was causing sprawl and loss of open space and farmland and natural habitat in the state. So we wanted to focus on Oregon because here's a state that has perhaps done more than any other single state to rein in sprawl. And what we found was that sprawl hasn't gone away. It hasn't disappeared. Oregonians have done a lot to control it. It's uh, occurring at the, you know, every five years or every decade, there is perhaps a third to only 50% of the sprawl that there was, say, in the last two decades of the 20th century. But of that sprawl that remains, virtually all of it now, 80 to 90% plus is due to the continuing population growth in the state. Oregon has about 4.1, 4.2 million people right now. is projected to rise by another 1.6 million by the year 2050, according to official projections. And that's going to put additional pressure on agricultural lands in the Willamette Valley and other high-value places, because unfortunately, a lot of the best land to build on on the periphery of cities happens to be the flattest lands with the best soil and best for farming, both uh, cultivation and non-cultivation agriculture. Another interesting point that I saw was kind of highlighted as part of the study was the looking again at consumers and those folks that are pushing urban straw, but that about 92% of voters think that the United States can produce enough food domestically to support our population. You know, uh, they they think, I think uh, the question was whether or not they think it should be able to do that, right? Mm, Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in in other words, Americans place a lot of importance on food security in, in a, you know, in a world that is sometimes contentious and unreliable and in which foreign sources of food you know, fruits from Chile or, or, or even Mexico uh, may not be readily available. Americans think it's important to be as self-sufficient as possible. We're recognizing that, you know, again, it's it's not always possible or not even always desirable. And by paving over some of the best farmland, those lands that can produce 
you know, the greatest output sustainably and with minimal inputs and fewer environmental constraints, uh, we're not, you know, going in the right direction. So, um, yeah, again, it's a, it's a serious issue that the United States and every other developed and developing country is facing it at the same time that demand for food is growing because of both increasing population and changing diets. Uh, the diets aren't changing so much in the United States, but around the rest of the world where developing countries such as the Chinas and the Indias, you find hundreds of millions of consumers, quote unquote, moving up the food chain, yeah. eating poultry, eating meat. All of that is much more land, water and energy intensive than eating rice or eating grains directly. Absolutely. We talk about that on the podcast a lot. So this is perfect. This fits in well with some of the the topics we've covered before. But Leon, before I let you go, if some of our listeners have any interest in reading through that report themselves, how can they find that? Yeah, they could find it by going to www.numbersusa.org. Awesome. Well, Leon, thank you so much for joining today. Delaney, you're most welcome. Thanks for your interest and thanks for having me. Interesting conversation. You know, and it's it's fascinating, Delaney. You and I, farm kids. Now I'm here in you know kind of the headquarters of urban sprawl, and you're there in Ankeny, dead center of Iowa, which has also seen a fair amount of urban sprawl over the past uh, several decades. Indeed, it has. And actually, this is a I guess if you want to call it a fun fact, but uh, I look at urban sprawl a lot for some of the, my speech topics, and by 2050, about 70 percent of the world's population will live in urban centers. Oh, man. Which, you know, is a mixed bag for agriculture. The right. downside is, of course, we're losing great ground. Whether we're looking at, uh, you know, northeastern, north-central Illinois, the area around Chicago, we're looking at the area around Des Moines, we're looking at the area you know, around Madison, Wisconsin, where this sprawl is happening is phenomenal farm ground. Some of the mm-hmm. greatest Class A ground in the world. We're putting, you know, houses up on it because that's a higher value. But at the same time, the fact that those folks are living in urban centers means that none of them are growing food. So we're right. growing our our uh, consum- consumer base, which should be a good thing. It's all very interesting dynamics, that's for sure. It is, Delaney Hall. Speaking of interesting dynamics, folks, that is what we aim to talk about here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. If you have missed any of our past episodes, head to our website. Check them out. Go to agnewsdaily.com or find us on social media, Ag News Daily, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We want to hear from you. We're getting close to planting. What's the situation looking like in your neck of the woods? Reach out to us. Share with us. You're going to be ready to rock and roll on time, or things are looking mighty soggy in your area. Delaney, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. 